Good morning, everybody. How you guys doing? Welcome to all my CMA brothers and sisters over there. I'm glad to see you guys here. I noticed a lot of people walk in the door, look over, and see all the black leather and stuff over here and go, I'm going to sit on this side. <laughs> For those of you who thought that, they don't bite. Talk to them afterwards. They're a great bunch, great bunch of uh, men and women. And, and that group is something that I belong to. Um, and what we do, the mission is just to use what God has put on our hearts as, as something that's fun, motorcycles, and to use that to be able to spread the gospel of Jesus. And how many of you know you can take whatever you do, whether you're a football fan and you're going to the game this afternoon, I pity you a little bit, by the way, but whatever it is that you do, whether it's for a living or it's a hobby, uh, a sport, anything that you do, you should do it for the glory of God. Amen. Exactly. And it doesn't have to be the typical things that we would think of. We can reach, using a motorcycle, we can reach people who would never talk to anybody that even came dressed like this. Chances are they wouldn't talk to you. But we can get into those places. And so wherever you are, the sports field, the rec center, um, your place of work, use it for the glory of God because he can use anything. And he'll use you in ways that you can't even imagine. So take some time after service. Hopefully they aren't going to take off immediately. Um, spend a few minutes and chat with them. Go out and look at the bikes. There's some cool bikes out there. Um, but let's just let's hang out as long as you want. I want to remind everybody, you out there online also watching, that we have postponed our Trunk or Treat event that was going to be tonight, postponed it to next Sunday. So those of you who um, had displays and stuff planned, just keep it in the trunk and pop it out next week. It'll give us time to do some more cool stuff, I promise. All right. Hey, let's get into the message. Welcome out there again online. Uh, Pastor Paphras, our friends, brothers and sisters in Tanzania, uh, wherever you are, welcome. Glad you guys are here. We're in the Gospel of Mark. We call the series of Servant Messiah because all the Gospels approach the mission of Jesus from a different standpoint. Matthew is very much about the, the messianic lineage and the royal lineage of Jesus um, and Luke, as we know, being a doctor, he's very straightforward and does interviews, and he's like, here are the facts, and he reports them kind of that way. Um, Mark, though, Mark is so straightforward. He is so brief in the way that he says things that oftentimes, like, that, that is great, but I know in my head there's more to that story. But Mark is just, here's what it's about. It's about Jesus being a servant. He wants to call attention to the source of the power. He talks about miracles, tons of miracles he talks about. And of course, he talks about everything leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. But he does it from a standpoint, here is, here is a human being just like us doing amazing things through the power of the Spirit just like us. And so his point is, look at all these incredible things that Jesus did in his ministry throughout the Galilee and everywhere that he went, but you know what? You have access to that same power through the Holy Spirit. 
And so rather than just to look at it and go, man, Jesus was, was incredible. He was God incarnate here on the world. And I wish I could do half of those things for the kingdom. Well, you can. Jesus himself said, you'll do more things, greater things than he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Mark is all about. That's what the gospel of Mark is all about. Now, we are on the home stretch. We are getting down. We've been in it for a year now. And we're coming down to the end of it. We've got the way the timing works out. I would say it's luck, but there's never anything left to chance with God. Um, we're going to finish it at the end of November so that December we shift into a, a little Christmas series. So uh, last weekend in November, we're going to wrap up Mark. And who knows what's next? I'm praying about that now. All right, let's get into this. Um, for those of you who are new here, there's going to be a lot of scripture. We'll put almost everything up there. What we don't put up on the screen, I'll read it to you so you won't miss out on anything. But if you have a Bible, grab it. Um, there's a lot here, and I do use a lot of scripture. So here we are. Quick recap of where we were. Jesus has done all his ministry with the disciples around the Galilee region, traveled up uh, to Jerusalem for Passover. They've had their... They've had their last supper. Jesus has gone into the temple and kicked out the money changers. All those things have happened. His big triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And he's been arrested. He's been arrested in, in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's been taken down to Caiaphas's palace. Last week, we talked about everything that happened in Caiaphas's palace. Um, Peter... Peter, I love Peter. His impulsive nature is both very um, familiar to me. A lot of times I like to leap and then look. But just like it doesn't always serve me well, it doesn't serve Peter well more often than not. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's the first one when Jesus is being arrested. He pulls out his sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the servants. And Jesus looks at him and goes, really, dude? I don't know, that's not scripture. But he said, really? Puts it back on, heals him and says, just simmer down. How many times does Jesus, in our common language, just say, Peter, just take it down a notch. Just settle down just a little bit. And what that translates to me is, why don't you take a, take a breath, listen to the Holy Spirit before you act. Had he done that, just as if we did that more often than not, we wouldn't get in a lot of trouble that we do. Peter's prideful, self-reliant nature had gotten him into a place where he was, he was in deep. What he had done is he had snuck right into the high priest's palace, into the courtyard, and he thought he could blend in with the, with the servants and assistants that were down below while Jesus was being tried in the rooms up above. But he gets spotted. He gets spotted and backed into a corner. And what he has to do, he has a choice. And the choice is, I can acknowledge Jesus. I can say, yes, I am a disciple of Jesus. He is my Lord and Savior. And suffer the consequences for doing that. Or he can give in to his flesh. He can give in to his self-protective nature saying, you know what? If I, if I just tell a little fib... Denying Jesus is not exactly a little fib. But if I just do that, I can save my skin. And that's what he does. 
He saves his skin. And we see from last week, Mark 14, 72, right after he, de- he denies Jesus again, and immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he hurried on and began to weep. Now, we've all seen or heard different parts of that scripture taught sometimes, but there's a cross-reference here from Luke. All the Gospels talk about this event, and, and Luke has just a little, it's just half a verse. Luke twenty-two sixty-one. it's just the first half of it. Now picture the scene, Jesus up above being, being hammered by the Sanhedrin. They're asking him questions, they're, they're accusing him, they're verbally assaulting him up there. Peter is down below. He's down below waiting to see what happens to Jesus. And right after, he denies Jesus again. Luke twenty-two sixty-one records this. And then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus, up above, in the midst of his own trial, turns and recognizes what Peter's going through. Scripture says he locks eyes with him. He, he engages. Can you imagine being in Peter's place and seeing Jesus turn and make eye contact with you? That gaze at the very same time, that moment of a glance of Jesus, both acknowledging the sin of Peter, calling it out, and forgiving it at the same time with just one glance. Calling it out, and forgiving it. We talked about calling out the sin. So what, what was Peter's sin? Pride. You were here last week. Good answer. <laughs> yes, but think about this. Think about the situation here. Peter, has, he was with Jesus. Jesus got arrested. Peter and the other disciples, they were able to escape. And then Peter infiltrates Caiaphas' palace probably thinking, what would you be thinking? If I can just get in there, maybe I can figure out a way to save Jesus. And if I can't save him, if I can't break him loose and and get him free, at least I can know what's going on and, and maybe somehow help. That's probably what Peter was thinking. What would you be thinking? Same thing, right? The problem is he ends up denying Jesus. And if we remember what he said, he said, may God strike me dead if I'm lying. He probably thought in his head, look, I'm lying, yes, but for a greater cause. I'm here to help Jesus. Surely, if I call down a curse on myself, God will understand and say, he's only lying to save himself so that he can save my son Jesus. What father wouldn't be okay with that? That's his mistake. His mistake is thinking that doing the wrong thing for the right reasons is somehow right, and it's not. Sin can be so difficult because we look at it and we insert all of our motives. And while sometimes that can be helpful, it's not always accurate. If we look at James, James 4.17 cuts right through all the questions like, well, is it sin if you, and if you do this, and, but if it's for this reason, and all the loopholes that we look, humans love loopholes, right? I know it says this, but 
James 4.17 says this, for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. You could write that down and we're done here. If you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's sin. That's Peter's sin right there. So let's get into the next half. That's our recap from last week. Let's get into the scripture for today. Mark 15, we're in the first of chapter 15. We're going to do verses 1 through 15. Mark 15, 1 to 15. Now the Sanhedrin had decided that Jesus was worthy of death. We have got to put this guy to death. And they decide the next thing they're going to do. Okay, remember their meeting, it's right smack in the middle of the night. Mark 15, 1. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, scribes, and the entire council immediately held a consultation. And they bound Jesus and led him away and turned him over to Pilate. Okay, they didn't have the authority to do what they wanted to do, but they were hoping to make it Pilate's problem so he would do what they couldn't. It's probably about 5 a.m. at this point, by the way. The Roman council day, the Roman business day, started at sunup. The minute the sun came up, that's typically, if there was a trial scheduled, that was when the first trial happened, right at sunup. So it's probably about 5 a.m. right about now. And the Sanhedrin wanted to get Jesus, in modern day we'd say, get him on the docket so he's in there first. They wanted to get him in there so that Pilate would handle it first thing. John's gospel now adds an important detail. Mark is very, very straightforward. John adds this. John 18, 28 to 31. I'll just read it for you. Then they brought Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate came out to them and said, What accusation are you bringing against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We're not permitted to put anyone to death, except when it suits them, by the way. Anybody that remembers um, Stephen being stoned to death in Acts 7? Okay, so when it suits them, they can go ahead and do those things. But right now what they're hoping, rather than to create a riot by themselves killing this prophet Jesus, who's very, very popular among the people, not amongst the leadership, but among the people, very popular. So instead of putting them to death himself, they're going to say, let's get Pilate to do it. And if Pilate does it, people already hate Pilate, so it's not going to be a problem for them will win by looking like good guys, Jesus will be gone. This is what they're trying to do. It allows them to distance themselves from the act. Pilate was known to be ruthless. Like, so much as just bothering him, casting a shadow over his meal plate, would be enough for him to put you in prison or have you killed. They expected this decision to be a no-brainer. Look, here's a guy, we're going to put him in your face first thing in the day, tell him, tell him all the things that this Jesus has done, and Pilate will just say, just be gone, prisoner death immediately. They thought that would happen. The only problem is that Pilate, Pilate was definitely not a good guy by any means, but 
he had more of a distaste for the Sanhedrin and the self-righteous Jewish leadership, Jews in general, but specifically the leadership, than he did for any self-proclaimed prophet. So he had no motivation for doing what the Sanhedrin wanted him to do. And in fact, we see Scripture play out where he's basically playing with them. He's toying with the Sanhedrin, poking at them to try and irritate them even more. So Pilate goes in and he follows these standard legal procedures, right? This is no kangaroo court. The Roman legal system is very, very strict and very rigid. Um, It's got procedures, and Pilate follows those procedures to the letter. The accuser brings charges. Then you have witnesses. Then you have rebuttals then sentencing, all those things. And so Pilate is following that. Now remember, the charge against Jesus, the charge that the Sanhedrin was bringing, was not that he blasphemed and called himself Son of God or I Am. The very thing that caused the Sanhedrin to lose their minds, right? The Jewish leadership. You're saying you're Son of God, and and they go berserk. That bothers them, but here's the thing. That wouldn't have meant anything to Pilate. Pilate's like, fine, that's your problem. Take care of that. I don't care. That's exactly where Pilate would have been. So what they have to do is that they have to bring a charge that Pilate will have no choice but to deal with. And that's what they do. We see this happening in Luke. Again, cross-reference here. Luke 23, 2. And they began to bring charges against him saying, we found this man misleading our nation, and listen to this, and forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar. Okay, now we have a problem. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Luke 23, 5, but they kept on insisting, saying, he is stirring up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, as far as this place. They're trying to tell Pilate, look, this guy's inciting riots. He's... uh, cause an insurrection, telling people not to pay taxes. That's something that would get Pilate's attention. That was a problem. Now, this is where Mark's tendency, really just to cut to the chase, leaves out some really important details. Luke 23, 7 says, And when he learned, he's talking about Pilate, (coughs) excuse me, and when he learned that he, Jesus, belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. Remember the last thing they said? Starting from Galilee, Pilate's like, ooh, okay. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, since he was also in Jerusalem at this time. The same Herod that beheaded John the Baptist. Pilate says, okay, this guy's from Galilee. That means he's in Herod's jurisdiction. It was Passover, so Herod wouldn't normally be there in in Jerusalem, but guess what? He is. Lucky me, I can send this whole rabble over to Herod and have Herod deal with it so I don't have to. He probably wasn't worried about any kind of bad press. He just wanted to make it somebody else's problem. So this is what he's doing. Now, imagine the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, everybody leaving the praetorium dissatisfied and following Jesus now, now in custody of the Roman guards, following them over to Herod. They're wondering if they're going to get any justice. This isn't how they'd probably hoped it would turn out. 
Luke 23, 8 to 11. So we're in this Luke 23 section that kind of talks more about this in detail. Listen to what it says, Luke 23, 8 to 11. Now Herod, again, they're taking Jesus to Herod, thinking that Herod's going to handle this problem for him. Now Herod was overjoyed when he saw Jesus. Oh. For he had wanted to see him for a long time because he'd been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he offered no answer at all. Herod's thinking, I've heard all about this Jesus of Galilee and doing all these miracles and, and uh, demonic deliverance and different things that he's doing. Um, I want to see it. I want to see some of this. And so he's probably hoping that Jesus is going to put on a show, do some tricks for him. But Jesus just stands there stoically. He doesn't say anything. And he questioned him at some length, but he offered no answer at all. Verse 10, now the chief priests and the scribes stood there vehemently charging him. And Herod, together with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. How quickly Herod's demeanor changed when now he sees that the chief priests and everybody else are hurling insults at Jesus, accusation after accusation, and those are his people. So now he's got to do something about this. So what they do, verse 11, And Herod, together with his soldiers, treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressing him in a brightly shining robe, and sent him back to Pilate. The Greek translation of that word, brightly shining robe, it indicates and is probably historically a purple robe. So what he would have, some say it was a white robe, but I think it was a purple robe. Put him on, that's a symbol of aristocracy, symbol of kingship. So by dressing him up in a purple robe and sending him back to Pilate, now they're saying, let's just underscore this idea that Jesus is saying that he's a king. There can't be any other king other than Caesar. So Herod's not willing to make this decision. He doesn't want it to be his problem either. So he sends him back to Pilate. Sends him back to Pilate. Mark 15, 2. Now we pick up back in where the, a lot happened between verse 1 and verse 2 of, of Mark's. Mark 15, 2. Pilate questioned him. So you're the king of the Jews. And he answered him, it is as you say. Now, that was a political charge. That was a political charge, standing there in a purple robe saying, I am the king of the Jews. It's just like you say. Herod had to, or uh, Pilate had to deal with this. But Jesus' answer was a clever one because he didn't say, yes, I am king of the Jews. He said, it's as you say. Pilate's hands are kind of tied. He's got his defendant here, and the defendant hasn't said, I am guilty he said, you're the one that said it. I'm just agreeing with you. It's creating a little problem here for Pilate. But now the chief priests and the, and the Sanhedrin and the scribes and the elders that are all standing there, they start seeing this, this, we might be starting to lose this battle. So they start hurling accusations at him. Mark 15, 3, and the chief priests started accusing him of many things. Verse 4, but Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you offer nothing in answer? See how many charges they're bringing against you? Verse 5, but Jesus said nothing further in answer. So Pilate was amazed. That word amazed, it, it just indicates that Pilate 
was used to people groveling in front of him. If you were in front of Pilate, you were in trouble. And with just a word or a whim or a wave of the hand, you could be put to death. Pilate's used to people groveling in front of him. Jesus isn't doing any of that. He's carrying himself with a, with a dignity and a humility that Pilate has never seen in front of him. And we know this, the silence of Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy that Isaiah, the prophet, had, had said hundreds of years before. Isaiah 42, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Pilate's in a, Pilate's in a sticky place here. What's, what's he going to do? Pilate's not used to losing. Pilate's not used to being on the back foot. He's got to do something here. So he has a brainstorm and he plays a little game of his own. Mark 15, 6. Now, at the Passover feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. This was a common thing. This just wasn't just Pilate. Most Roman governors of the provinces that they were over would do this once a year. They would release a prisoner just to show goodwill and just to keep in the, in the good graces of the commoners. So Pilate's doing what was common for him to do. Now here's where this gets to Pilate's navigating out of this sticky situation. Mark 15, 7. And the one named Barabbas, bless you, the one named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the rebels who had committed murder in the revolt. Okay, how many people here have never heard the story of Barabbas or never heard the name Barabbas? Okay, most of us have, right? I want to show you something that's in Scripture that puts a little bit of a different spin. Have you ever wondered why Barabbas is, number one, why he's even named? There are a lot of times when the, even the disciples aren't mentioned by name. It says, and the other disciple. You ever wonder why? All four Gospels mention this event. All four Gospels mention Barabbas by name. Let's look at what's happening here. First of all, Barabbas is a fellow Jew. Okay? He's, he's also a Jew. Now, we know this because of the name. Anytime you see the word Bar as a part of a name, it means son of. Son of. So, it means his name is son of something. This is where some debate comes in here. It could be Bar-Rabbas. Two different words, Bar-Rabbas, which means son of the teacher, or son of a teacher, which would have been a, a high-placed teacher, probably in the Sanhedrin, most likely. And he was probably the son of that teacher. Or it could also be Bar-Abbas, which would mean son of the father. Okay, I believe that if we research it out, which I've done for you, but feel free, feel free to go do it. I believe that, that the accurate translation is Bar-Rabbas, okay, which means son of the teacher. We do know this. Matthew 27 calls him a notorious prisoner. Luke 23 calls him a murderer and an insurrectionist, and John 18 calls him a robber. He is not a good guy. He has been arrested for fighting against Roman occupation. Okay, we would call him an insurrectionist or a terrorist even today. He's been put in jail for murdering 
for stealing, for thieving, for doing whatever he had to do in the name of saving his people from Roman occupation. Mark 15, 8. And the crowd went up and began asking Pilate to do as he had been accustomed to doing for them. By this time in the morning, by the way, again, remember, it's, it's like maybe 5, 6 in the morning maybe now. The crowd was probably mostly just Sanhedrin members. Okay? This was Passover. So there were a million pilgrims that came in from all over Judea, all over all the surrounding countries. They would come into Jerusalem for Passover. But there, there are no Motel 6s inside Jerusalem. So they were probably camping out in the fields and things like that. This would have been, this time of day, mostly just Sanhedrin members. Mark 15, 9 and 10 says, So Pilate, Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Pilate was smart enough to see their plan. He knew that they weren't here with genuine concern that like, look, we're bringing this guy to you because, because um, he, he's not giving you the taxes that you deserve. We're afraid you're going to get in trouble with your superiors, Pilate, so we're bringing him to you. Pilate's smarter than that. He disliked the arrogant Sanhedrin even more than he disliked the idea of this popular people's king prophet being released. So he assumes that they're just going uh, to say, yes, repeat, release Jesus. He repeatedly uses the title king of the Jews just to mock them, just to mock the Sanhedrin that's there. Pilate uses that term more than anybody else. Mark 15, 11, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd. You could see maybe the crowd was thinking about, well, yeah, we can get Jesus free. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd and asked him to release Barabbas for them instead, kind of promoting their own sort of prisoner exchange. We'll give you ours if you give us yours. But Pilate's plan now, as smart and as crafty as he was, his plan's about to backfire on him. Mark 15, 12 And responding again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? Again, using that term. Probably expecting them to say, flog him and put him in prison, most likely. Flog him and put him in prison. But here's what they do, Mark 15, 3. They shouted back, crucify him. That's, anybody ever seen Christmas Story? Where you go from a, from a single dog dare, like a dare, to a triple dog dare. Pilate, the, this crowd talking to Pilate, had just skipped from, from let's flog him, let's put him in prison, all these low-level things. They have gone right to level 10, crucify him. They can't, they can't stand the thought that he might get out back in public and create more problems for him. Now, crucifixion was... It had a lot of significance for the Romans and for the Jews, of course. It was meant to be equal parts agonizing and humiliating. They wanted to humiliate Jesus before finally putting him to death. And Pilate, at this point, he's got to give them what they want. He has to give them what the crowd wants, not out of respect, but out of self-preservation on his part. If I don't do what this crowd wants... Something's going to get back to Rome. 
how I didn't take care of this guy and there's going to be complaints and he doesn't want any complaints, anything leaving his little courtroom in the praetorium there. He's got to deal with this now and he's got to deal with it finally. So he gives up the fight for Jesus, seeing that it's not going anywhere. <clears throat> Matthew 27, 24. Now when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. You yourselves shall see. We've all seen that scene where Pilate washes his hands of, of Jesus' death, right? Where does that come from? Anybody know? That's Old Testament scripture. That comes out of Deuteronomy. Here's Pilate. Pilate's a Roman through and through. And he is performing a, an Old Testament Jewish ritual just to show them, look, I understand your culture too, and I understand your religion too, and I understand that you know what this means when I do it. That comes from Deuteronomy 21.6. Here's what happens. This is all the fun things that you'll find in Deuteronomy when you go back and look. It says, it addresses all kinds of legal situations. And so it says, if you're out in the fields and you come across a dead body, someone who has been murdered, and you don't know who murdered it, who, who murdered this person, what you do is you take elders from all the surrounding villages, you go out to this body, and you all pace off the distance to your villages. And whoever's village is the closest has to take responsibility for that dead body. That's how it worked. Then what you would do is you would get a heifer, you would get a cow, one that hasn't been milked, one that hasn't been yoked, basically as pure as you can of a heifer, and they would kill it. They would kill it in, in atonement for that death. And then they would ceremonially wash their hands of that death and then move on. That's where this comes from, absolving them. And Pilate is doing that very thing that comes out of their history. And so they would have seen that act and went, okay. They would have known that he was poking at them, saying, you're the one murdering him. I might be the one doing the act, but I didn't murder him. You did. Mark 15, 5. Intent on set... Oh, I already read that. Oh, no. Mark 15, 15. In intent on satisfying the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. The point of flogging, by the way, was just to weaken the victim enough so they didn't last too long under crucifixion. You're trying to create enough blood loss and enough trauma to where the crucifixion went pretty quickly, typically. All right, so let's, let's put this all, let's make some sense of it. Let's make some sense of it. You ever wonder, and I posed a question earlier, why all four Gospels mention Barabbas by name? It's not common. It's very common for names to be deleted and just says this person or that person or, or even left out entirely. We never hear from Barabbas before this or after this. There's no, and he lived happily ever after. There's no story about how Barabbas grew up in a troubled home. There, there's nothing like this. We know nothing about Barabbas. So why do all four Gospels mention him by name? tell you why. Barabbas is a type for Satan and a shadow for all of humanity. Think about this. 
Barabbas is a rebel. He's a thief. He's a liar. He's a murderer. And he incited rebellion in Jerusalem. If we want to parallel that, what I mean by a type and a shadow is a type. If you want to parallel that to Satan, whereas Satan incited rebellion in heaven. Barabbas is doing the same thing in Jerusalem, and he's been found guilty, and he's been put in prison because he tried to win by violence. He tried to win by murder and by theft and by anything that he could do, doing in his mind what he thought was the right thing. But you contrast that with Jesus, where Jesus wins by inciting peace and love and forgiveness. What a contrast right there. Barabbas was guilty. He was guilty. He had been found guilty, and he had been sentenced. But he escaped that penalty because it was laid on Jesus instead. That's a shadow of all of humanity. See, Barabbas couldn't save himself. He's probably pretty strong, probably pretty crafty, but he got caught. And he was about to serve the penalty. But Jesus took his place. Jesus took the penalty of this convicted man upon himself. Now you could say it was put on him, but Jesus could have argued. Jesus didn't argue. No fanfare, no complaint. The punishment that Barabbas deserved was laid on Jesus instead, who even Pilate said, I don't find anything wrong with this man. He hasn't done anything. And yet he took the penalty that Barabbas deserved. The Jewish leaders, they were given the choice between the Lamb of God and a rebellious murderer. There was no secret. Nobody thought, oh, we think that he's innocent instead. They knew who he was. They knew who Barabbas It says notorious. That means everybody knew what Barabbas did. So they weren't saying, we don't think he's guilty. They knew he was, but they chose him over the Lamb of God. Why? Why did they do that? You could argue that he was maybe the son of one of the Sanhedrin members and they wanted him to be set free because he was one of them. You could argue that they chose to save the one that didn't challenge them in any way. They chose to save the one who went along with what they said and did and believed. And in fact, could be used as, a, as an arm to accomplish those things. The one who made them look good in comparison. The one who was one of them. So here's, here's the conclusion that I want to leave you with. I want you to pray about this message. Pray about the idea of Barabbas, a, a convicted criminal. Guilty, caught, caught right in the act put in prison, judged guilty, awaiting his fate. And then comes Jesus. Jesus comes along and takes that away from him. Laid on him, and Barabbas gets to walk free. And the question I have is, are we like Barabbas, trying to save our people through our own power? See, Barabbas thought he was doing the right thing, using evil, horrible methods to do it. But he thought he was trying to save his people. 
How many times do we do things in the name of we think we're doing the right thing by saying or doing or posting something to save our people? Because if only all these people knew the truth, and I'm going to be the one to bring them the truth. Are we trying to do that? Or are we going to rely on the power of Jesus? John the Baptist said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We can do nothing to take away our own sin. But Jesus can. We can do nothing to take away the fate that we are slated for because of our sins. But Jesus can. And so we can do everything in our power, but we're still guilty. We're still awaiting penalty for our sin except Jesus takes it away. And are we going to sit here and think that we're the ones responsible for any freedom that we have? Any freedom that you have, any life that you have, we're somehow responsible for it? Or are we going to thank Jesus every day for the freedom that we have because he took the penalty that we deserve? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, that you sent Jesus to die in our place. That we don't have to suffer the penalty and the sins for our mistakes. That, Lord, we are set free. So, Father, I pray right now that all of us, as we, as we sit here listening to this, that you touch our hearts and show us, is there a place in our life where we are, we somehow feel that we are the Savior. We have put ourselves in the place of Barabbas by acting in ways to save our people that we're not called to do. Only Jesus can save. Father, show us that place. And if you're showing us something right now, if you're in here and you're listening to me and there's a place that the Lord is pinpointing, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and saying, hey, this thing you're doing, it's exactly like that then the answer is to repent of that. Say, Lord, I, I repent. I turn away from those sorts of thoughts, thinking that I can do anything in my own power. I repent of any damage, anything I've done to the kingdom to, to, to hurt the causes of spreading the gospel message of Jesus through my actions. And Lord, help me to be a reflection of who Jesus is. A humble servant, bringing a message of love and of peace. Father, help me to be that ambassador of Christ in the world. Father, I praise you for who you are. I praise you for who you say I am. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, guys, we're going to take, um, we're going to take communion right now. We take communion every week. And you don't have to be a member of this church. All you need to do is be able to look at, look at the body and blood of Christ and say, I understand what that means and I accept what Christ did for me. The body broken for you to take that punishment that we so deserve and the blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant higher than the old covenant, higher than just the law alone, but a new covenant in Christ. And if you can say, 
yes to those, then we invite you to take communion with us today. The way we'll do it, the worship team will start playing. And when you're ready, just move to the center aisles and come down. We'll have one station over here, another station over on this side, and we'll have wine and bread there. And you just dip the bread or we have gluten-free crackers too. You can dip those in the wine. If you want to serve yourself or would rather not have wine, we have juice at the station right over here by the window. And you could serve yourself there. But when you are ready and you want to say yes to what Jesus did for you and what he offers you, we say yes to that again every single day. And if that's you, we invite you to take communion with us. Thank you, guys.